Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles. But we still here, in the bill here. Up coins, hell pro. Show. They got me started, lying hearted. I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns, that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. That 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles. But we still here, in the bill here. Up coins, hell pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, bullshit, I don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. The most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
should have an email. We, we printed it out. We have a directory. Yeah. Okay. Hello, all. Thank you all for coming to this town hall um, about a conversation of black reparations and also opening it up to Swanee's place in that and what we can all do, having an opening conversation of that. Um, hi, I'm the Order of the Gown President, Alexis McKnight, and I'm excited to be able to help facilitate this dialogue. And I just want to echo Alexis and thank all of y'all for coming out. Uh, I'm Christian Shushuk. I'm an SGA senator, and I think it's both of our pleasure uh, to introduce the great speakers we have for you today. I'm going to start by introducing Dr. William A. Darity. Uh, Dr. William Darity Jr. is the Samuel Dubois Cook uh, Professor of Public Policy, African American Studies and Economics, and the director of the Samuel Dubois uh, Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He has served as chair of the Department of African American Studies and was the founding director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequality at Duke. Darity's research focuses on inequality by race, class and ethnicity, stratification, economics, schooling, and the racial achievement gap, north-south theories of trade and development, skin shade and labor market outcomes, the economics of reparations, the Atlantic slave trade, and the industrial revolution, the history of economics, and the social and psychological effects of exposure to unemployment. So as you can see, he is quite the well-researched individual uh, by that list. And it is my great honor to be able to introduce Ms. A. Kristen Mullen, um, Ms. A. Kristen Mullen is a folklorist and the founder of Artifactual, an arts consulting practice, and Caroline Circuit Writers, a literary consortium that brings expressive writers of color to the Carolinas. She was a member of the Freelon A.J. Bond Concept Development Team that was awarded the Smithsonian Institution's Commission to design the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Under the auspice of the North Carolina Arts Council, she worked to expand the Coastal Folklife Survey, as a faculty member with the Community Folklife Documentation Institute, she trains students to research and record the state's African-American music heritage. Mullen was a consultant on the North Carolina Museum of History's North Carolina Legends and Civil Rights Exhibition Projects. Her writing in museum catalogs, journals, and, in pro and commercial media includes Black Culture and History Matter, The American Prospect, which examines the politics of funding black cultural institutions. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Jarity and Ms. Mullen. Thank you very, very much for the generous introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all today. We have uh, spent several days on the campus. It's our first visit to Suwanee, and uh, it has been both informative and eventful. And I predict that today will be no different. So, um, we're going to lead a directed conversation today uh, on the attention now being given to reparations for what we call Native Black Americans or Black American students of U.S. slavery. So, um, we intend this session to be completely interactive. And so, we're going to begin with uh, a series of questions. And I am hoping to get as much information about your thoughts on these questions as possible, which I'm going to record. I'm going to have them up here on the wall so we can use them to reflect. And then after we've had a chance to go uh, work through this list, then we'll kind of talk about uh, your responses and try to get some sense of, of um, 
you know, if they're, tr- if they're patterns, uh, you know, just what, 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 what is revealed, right? What do we, what do we all, what, what's our shared knowledge here today? Okay. So that's what we're going to try to do. So the first question, um, when did you first become aware of the prospect of reparations for black Americans? You can raise your hand or I'll call on you. When did you first become aware of the prospect of reparations for black Americans? Yes. Was there a hand? Um, I became aware of it when I did some research and realized the only reparations that has happened to this point has been to the slave owners of said like um, freed slaves. The British thought that they deserved um, reparations for their lost property, in quotation marks. And <clears throat> the more research I do on reparations, I realize there is like a strong foundation, but for the other side that we choose to, 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 um, say that's no longer have any influence. Like, uh, there is for sure history of, um, reparations, but going to the, um, former slave masters, and I think we should acknowledge that, that there has been reparations, but it's been going the opposite way than the current talk. What's your name, please? Alexis Castro, uh, class of 23. Thank you. Someone else? Hello, uh, Cyrus Wilson, sophomore, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess this summer uh, I did some research for a nonprofit back home in Maryland, and they're looking to implement some uh, form of reparations. Uh, there was a bill passed this past year to uh, give money to the black cemeteries in Maryland that um, I guess are, haven't had any money ever. Um, and so to acknowledge that the past of slavery um, in Maryland and uh, now to donate money back uh, to rebuild uh, stuff and like cemeteries is just the first start of it. So. I'm Matthew Mitchell, and I guess I'll throw one into the mix just very, very quickly. I first uh, really uh, came to be aware of the idea of reparations uh, back when I was in college in 2001, uh, when a man that I don't know if you've heard of him or not, a guy called David Horowitz, uh, took out an advertisement in uh, my college newspaper and a whole bunch of other college newspapers about why he believed it was a bad idea. You know, maybe him uh, making me aware of it, you know, maybe that wasn't his intention, I don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it could be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for all you who weren't there, then this this actually is really really well known, and of course our uh, our speakers know all about this. <laughs> we do have some discussion of it in our Challenged. Can we get a few more? There's a couple. Oh, sorry. Um, hi, my name is Charlotte LeBlanc. Um, I think I heard about it uh, like the end of 2018, beginning of 2019 uh, from a Twitter discussion. Um, was the first experience that I had of like a full length like mentioning and defining what reparations would look like in America. And what was that? What was the occasion? Uh, I just uh, threw like a Twitter discussion. Oh, Twitter discussion. <laughs> Charlotte LeBlanc. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, although I'm holding the mic, I guess I can go. Um, the first time I learned about it was um, when I was at a previous institution in 2018. It was a topic of one of my seminar classes. sharecropper shack in South Carolina. His mother and father were illiterate, except to maybe spell their name. And he had, when he was young, his grandmother had lived with him. He had been born a slave. My only chance, I only had to ever talk to somebody who actually knew a slave. And uh, she had been born a slave, but she didn't, she wasn't old enough to remember it, but she did remember the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the early 20th century. And he spoke with great joy with his grandmother until he got to the end. And she said she, he said she was afraid or scared all her life. And that's when it came to me that we owed something. What's your name? Thank you. One last one. Hello, my name is Noah Shively. Um, the first, yes, yes, ma'am. Uh, the first time I heard a discussion around reparations was upon coming to Suwannee when Dr. Register led a discussion on reparations in the university for first year students where the question was called into play of if Georgetown's uh, notions of reparations for its students uh, was like a successful ethical implementation of like what reparations should look like in like the university lens. So, first year students at that in 
focused on? It was focused like what reparations look like for Swanee, and we circled it around the discussion of Georgetown's usage of reparations. In fact, in the nation of Haiti, which was the first site in which there was a successful comprehensive uprising by enslaved people, the country of Haiti was compelled to pay reparations to France uh, for the loss of the property that was attributable to the revolution that took place in Haiti. Uh, but in the United States, there's only one group of slave owners who were actually directly compensated, and that's the slave owners in the District of Columbia, uh, where a program of compensated emancipation was conducted during the midst of the Civil War. Uh, in, in the British colonies, as you pointed out, uh, Slaveholders were compensated, but there, there are many other instances of reparations that have taken place outside of the context of the history of slavery, uh, including uh, what was mentioned, uh, the Holocaust victims receiving payments from the German government, but in the United States, uh, Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during the course, course of World War II uh, subjected to mass incarceration. They received reparations payments in the late 1980s. Uh, the families that lost loved ones during the course of the 911 attacks were given federal monies as reparations. Uh, the individuals who were held hostage in Iran during the, uh, the waning years of the Carter administration uh, recently received a commitment for reparations. Right. And, and this is a, actually a pretty striking Extraordinary situation. Because they, they are being paid uh, $10,000 $10, per day, of captivity. day of captivity. So the typical About $4.3 million per individual. Right, right. Because yeah. the typical individual was held captive for about 440 days. So we're talking about yeah. $4 million or, right. or more. So I love uh, the way the eyeballs get really big when you hear those numbers, right? So, 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 just want to say that there are other cases of reparations, uh, but in the context of the history of enslavement that's taken place in the Americas, uh, there is no instance in which 
the individuals who were subjected to slavery or their descendants received direct forms of reparation. So, Let me say this, uh, another I, instance of one of those really uh, gargantuan payments. Um, some of you may be aware that um, there were protesters for the, of, the Iraq war, of the Iraq War who were, uh, in 2003, who were um, unlawfully detained, arrested and detained. And um, um, a settlement was made with them in 2012. Um, so the longest detainment was a day and a half. Okay? The longest detainment was a day and a half. And uh, those individuals received $15,000 for a day and a half of being in jail. Um, those who were arrested and not charged, $8,750. And any individual who was on the scene but not arrested received 500 So uh, None going, of them were black. Going to uh, <laughs> points two mm-hmm. and uh, eight, I think that there is a relationship between them. So this is Ava and Noah's comments. Um, Ava was talking about becoming aware of reparations in the context of learning about the German payments to the victims of the Holocaust. And Noah, you mentioned uh, Sawani, uh, your, your experience as a first year student hearing about uh, what Sawani might, might do, uh, how that might be related to Georgetown's uh, 272 uh, instance from a seminar that was held by uh, Professor Register. And uh, I, I, we're not going to pursue this in depth right now, but this raises the question of whether or not reparations is something that can be conducted on a piecemeal fashion by individual institutions rather than something that must be conducted in a comprehensive fashion by the federal government. Uh, and should institutions that pursue acts of atonement actually refer to this as reparations? And so uh, we're not going to pursue that in detail in this moment, but but that's a topic we want to come to. Uh, do you like to talk about David Horowitz? <laughs> so David Horowitz' case was really provocative. Um, you know, he you know said that slavery was really good for black people. They were civilized. They learned to speak English, wear clothes, eat with silver utensils. Um, and the reparations is a really bad idea. It's a really bad idea. Um, you know, it would be one thing. He said, if reparations had been paid to living enslaved people and to their immediate descendants, of course, in 2001, there actually were some immediate descendants. As you said, you met one, and we actually know one who is alive today. Um, and from Here to Equality, we uh, share a story from Hortense McClinton, who was uh, the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill's first tenured black, or we say first phenotypically black professor who was tenured. And she is alive today. She's 102, and she is the daughter of an enslaved person. Uh, her father was an infant when slavery ended, but he was, in fact, born enslaved. Um, and there have been, a, you know, it's a handful of such people. You know, but, of course, if they wait long enough, you know, not only will all of those people uh, have, have passed, but those of us who live through Jim Crow uh, will also have passed, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So, but, but, but Horowitz, uh, Horowitz is, uh, we were excited not excited, but we were intrigued because Horowitz's um, sort of manifesto brought the you know brought this topic to a whole new generation of young people. He he purposely had these full page ads uh, placed in elite college and university newspapers where they would be seen, um, 
And this was also the same year that um, a sort of a truth and reconciliation and reparations conference was planned in Durban, South Africa. We actually had plans at one point to go. Um, and that, but almost immediately during or after? It's, it's shortly after. Shortly after, like days, literally days after that conference took place. And it was, you know, attended by, you know, people from all over the world who were talking about reparations, not just in the United States, but reparations well, at... And the United States at, government refused, re- to, refused send to send an official, an official uh, uh, yeah. Although there were many people from this country who did go. Yeah. But, um, but there was no official U.S. delegation. Yeah. But days after that occurred, 9-11 happened. And the whole conversation just evaporated, yeah. right? Yeah. But that is one of the significant aspects of uh, David Horowitz. And I would say, even though people like us and others were, you know, meeting mostly in college and universities, talking about reparations, the public conversation just absolutely just evaporated until 2014, when ta Coates's cover story for the Atlantic Monthly uh, on reparations was published. Okay. All right. Yeah, so, so Charlotte, you mentioned uh, the Twitter-verse as a site in which you learned about this. And as somebody who spends far too much time in the Twitter-verse, uh, I'm somewhat curious about, do, do you recall who you were having these exchanges with? Yeah. I don't think I even, like, replied to things. I was just reading a whole, I was just reading, like, a whole discussion about it. It was from either a historian or a journalist I was following. Yeah. Um, Do you remember what the discussion was about? It was just re- responding to claims about um, reparations and, like, um, doubts of how they'd be implemented and stuff like that, kind of similar to what was discussed yesterday evening. Yeah. Um, and I also want to actually add, shortly after that, um, we actually had some uh, RSCJ from uh, I went to Catholic High School come to talk to us about our specific high school's history with slavery. It was founded in 1821, um, so it was actually very timely um, that they happened around the same time. Um, yeah, it was just kind of reading through things and just becoming more aware to, aware of it as uh, a policy that could potentially take place in America. Okay. Uh, uh, Lexis, could you tell us a little more about the seminar class? Yes. Um, so I was enrolled in the University Abroad, and um, the similar class talked about reparations on very different forms because um, the university was Goldsmiths University of London, and so they directly were able to like make this university exist from slavery. It's like that was a very big conversation about the way that that university could go about it. And then in the seminar class, we opened it up to um, black reparations for inside of America and the way that that could look, specifically within colleges going back it wasn't more of like a governmental thing just because of our own direct ties and, and, and Howard uh, this is a, a really powerful story uh, I wish we had known about it before we wrote our book because yeah. it's one that we would have been inclined to include uh, but uh, another critical point that I think e- emerges from this is that actually slavery wasn't that long ago. Right. Okay. Uh, especially especially from a generational perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So in terms of your family. In my own family, my mother's mother was the daughter of a slave. And both my children knew her into their adulthood. So not that long ago. And we, I have many, 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 many stories about my great-grandfather. So not that long ago. 
And it's not as if, too, people say, oh, you know, these people were, some of these people were, we're talking about were, were children, uh, you know, were born and then slavery ended. It's not like a, a, a light switched and suddenly their lives were transformed. That's not at all what happened. Um, you know, we're in this sort of slow process that continues today. Um, so, you know, their lives were probably not that different from those of their parents and grandparents, even though they were, you know, less than a year or two or three years old when slavery ended. Yeah. All right. So, shall we go to the next one? The next question. So, when did black Americans first demand reparations? Like emancipation. Oh, sorry. I think pretty much immediately following emancipation. I'm not aware of any um, demands prior to emancipation, but I wouldn't be surprised if those existed as well. case in the 18th century in Massachusetts where uh, an enslaved woman escaped, essentially uh, emancipated herself in the free state, and then demanded reparations of her former owner. Uh, yes. Thank you. I couldn't remember the name. Um, and so that was 1720s, I think? It's later than that. I'm sorry. Uh, dim memory. Right story. Right No other ideas about when black Americans first demanded preparations? Black Manifesto, 1956, right? And what is the black manifesto? Yeah. So that's the long answer. <laughs> Um, sorry to keep talking. Um, one that we talked about in the book clubs is um, the story of when a slave owner wrote a letter to someone who escaped slavery and was in the North. I'm not specifically sure what state, but they were trying to request them to come back. It was after emancipation and said that they would pay them. And the institution or the individual wrote back and said, you owe me this much money for what I did, and you owe my wife this much money for what she did. Um, and like the letter was very powerful and was directly sent back to the slave owner. For, for a long time, we thought that that letter was, uh, was a fabrication. But uh, at the beginning of this book on reparations by a couple of theologians, Quan and Thompson, they actually tell the story about how that letter originated. 
and it's entirely authentic. Uh, but, it, but that's, 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 a, that's one of those really remarkable statements or testaments by an individual who had been subjected to slavery uh, and how he responds to, to the person who had formerly owned him and his family. Yeah, yeah. Am I right in guessing that we don't have many other thoughts or guesses on this question? Okay, so we will begin. So on uh, emancipation, uh, actually there were claims for emancipation that, uh, that took place and claims for restitution that took place uh, before the end of the Civil War. Uh, and we would probably argue that in addition to the, the enslaved being the first abolitionist, yes. the enslaved were also the first advocates of restitution for their condition. Uh, and in the case of Belinda, which I think, not certain about the dates, but it's, 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 it's later than the 1720s, I believe, but it's before the revolution. Correct. Uh, the case of Belinda is indicative of an instance in which a claim for reparations was made prior to the Civil War. Right. Uh, so, so Massachusetts uh, is one of those New England states that, um, I think Andy was talking about this uh, the other day, that had uh, a graduated emancipation process. So I think Pennsylvania maybe was the first in something like 17... 63, I want to say, but you had New Hampshire, um, Vermont, uh, or the Republic of Vermont, um, uh, Rhode Island. But typically what, what they did was say um, that everyone who, well, eventually all of those, those states converged on, a, on, the, on identical uh, legislation, which said that every enslaved person who was born after 1790 would be uh, emancipated after their 28th birthday. So they prolonged the period of enslavement for them for 28 more years. So, you know, this, this guaranteed that, you know, anyone who owned those people, who claimed to own them, got that much more work, that much more free labor from them. And, of course, any children they had also would serve for 28 years. So if you think about it, they got 50, what's that, my math, 56 more years out of that, potentially. There's a, um, there were two facets to proposals to end slavery without going to war. Mm -hmm. One facet is what Kirsten referred to as the graduated scheme, so that there would be some period of time that would have to elapse before the individual was given uh, emancipated status, but the other dimension was the, uh, the the strategy that was proposed, but only executed in the United States in the District of Columbia, which was to provide compensation to the slaveholders, monetary compensation, and and this was called compensated emancipation, uh, and had a scheme of graduated cum compensated emancipation taken place, it would have been possible to end slavery without having the Civil War. But the, uh, the, the slaveholding states refused every overture for a scheme of uh, compensated emancipation. And uh, Abraham Lincoln was trying to get 
such a scheme to be adopted as late as, I believe, February 1865. Right. And the war actually formally comes to an end in April of months. that year. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he'd, he'd been trying that since the, the late... Uh, uh, the late 1840s right. to come up with a scheme for compensated emancipation. But so, so when people talk about the lives that were lost during the Civil War, we have to think about the question of who went to war and why. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say too, the the enslavers uh, who were in Washington D.C. who were forced, they had no option. They didn't, they didn't have a they didn't have a choice. Uh, but to emancipate their slaves. And they received $300 for each individual, regardless of their age, regardless of their infirmities. They received $300 for each person. Um, Frederick Douglass uh, and a number of abolitionists were pushing, you know, as well. Uh, but the number, uh, the dollar amount got up to $800 per person and still no takers, still no takers. Even Delaware, so this is a state that, that Abraham Lincoln thought, surely Delaware will buy into this strategy. Because um, Delaware was a, a small state. It had a, really, a relatively small number of enslaved people. Yeah, I think only 3% of their white population, Total population owned, owned slaves. slaves. And, so, and their economy was not, you know, therefore, um, um, was not um, as dependent, as dependent yeah. on slavery as it was certainly across the South. But they were one vote short. One vote short. Couldn't make it happen. All right. Uh, but but I want to say something else about the point that you're making about, you know, black people being the first abolitionists. I mean, from the moment the first enslaved black person got here, they were trying to figure out how can I, A, get away from this, right? How can I escape this situation? And if I can't escape it, how can I at least get compensated for my labor? But that's certainly not something that was taught in my history test. Well, they, well, they were trying to get out of it on shipboard. Well, that's true, too. Yeah. Um, and people were, you know, you know, jumping off the ships and committing suicide and, um, and mutinying, uh, which, again, was not discussed in my history classes. I was in college before I learned about any of that. Um, and, you know, and even when the abolitionists were talked about, with the, with the one exception in my case of Frederick Douglass, they didn't really talk about black abolitionists. And it was interesting. I mean, we did know about Harriet Tubman, although I had no idea of the scope of her work. Um, and I knew about Sojourner Truth, but mostly I knew that, that one statement that she made when she was in court. But they were never part of that pantheon, those two women, which is interesting to me. I'm not sure what that was about. But, um, you know, that's much less the case now. But this, this very narrowing of information that was presented, I think there's a definite pattern there. Um, you know, but black people themselves were among the folks who were designing these reparations plans. You, some of you may be aware of the work of Callie Guy House, who was from Tennessee. She's a black woman who was born enslaved. And she was one of the founders of the first formal organization to push for reparations for black Americans. And, uh, you know, her, she was from Rutherford County, two counties over. Um, she was... Um, uh, uh, a young widow with five children, um, illiterate initially. Uh, like her mother, she took in washing to make her living. And she um, realized that, you know, the Union soldiers, the, the black people who had fought for the Union, deserved pensions, just as the white Union soldiers did. And uh, she and others decided that they would model this program after the one that had been created for the Union veterans. Um, you know, she had attended some of the freedom schools 
uh, the Freedmen's Bureau had set up, and they had talked about the Declaration of Independence, and and she had learned that you know American citizens have the right to, um, to, to to petition in an orderly way, to petition their government for their needs, and to make requests of the government. And she said, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to create a petition, and this became um, a dues-paying membership organization. At one point, according to the federal records. They had 300,000 paid members in this organization, um, but she was brought down by the federal government. Uh, you had elite black people joining hands with white people saying, oh, you know, this woman and her allies are getting the black people. They're making the black people wild, you know, with this idea that the federal government is going to do something. And so their rationale for coming after her was saying, well, everybody knows that the federal government doesn't give a, a hoot about these black people. So anybody who would say otherwise has to be a con artist. So we're going to arrest her for fraud. And that's what they did. You know, they forbade her from sending information through the mail. They forbade her from receiving money through the mail. This is before, you know, you could just swipe your, your square card or your, your credit card. I mean, how else could they have received, you know, those membership dues? And so ultimately, she was arrested for mail fraud, and she did go to jail, yes, for trying to obtain support for initially black Union veterans and then for the, the ex-slaves. Uh, I, I was uh, incorrect about the date on Melinda. Oh, good. Also, you that up. <laughs> uh, she uh, issued her claim for reparations in 1783. And... Um, there's an excellent article by Roy Finkenbein called Belinda's Petition, Reparations for Slavery in Revolutionary Massachusetts that was published in the William and Mary Quarterly, January 2007. So Perfect. For those of you who want to know more about that case, okay. that's, that's her story. So I think we should say something, too, about um, uh, special field orders, uh, uh, number 15, maybe in this moment, but also... Um, you all may be aware that shortly before the Civil War ended, this is um, January 1865, uh, and this is when President uh, Lincoln you know, charged uh, uh, William Sherman and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton to meet in Savannah, Georgia, with 20 black leaders to find out, you know, what do the freed people need to make a way, you know, to make their way after the war has ended. Um, and so they chose a spokesperson, so all uh, members of the clergy. Uh, many of them were ministers, but some of them were also you know, deacons in their, in their churches. They were Sunday school leaders. And they uh, elected Reverend Garrison Frazier, who in fact was a native of Granville County, North Carolina, to be their spokesperson. Um, and he uh, and all the members of his uh, coalition said, um, when asked, you know, what do, you know, what do these blacks need to build an independent life for themselves and their family. And he said, they need land. They need land. Um, you know, the best way we can take care of ourselves is to have land and turn and till it by our own labor. We want to be placed on land until we are able to buy it and make it our own. And then literally, what, just weeks later? It's not even weeks. It's like a few days later, um, special field orders number 15 are issued. Uh, and it specifies that 40-acre land grants would be given to these newly enslaved black families, right? Newly, newly 
newly emancipated. Goodness, thank you. Um, and so what we're talking about is a 30-mile band of land that stretched from the Sea Islands of South Carolina all the way to the St. John's River in Florida. Right? Um, so that initial, that initial allocation was 5.3 million acres of land. And the idea was that, you know, people would have an opportunity to develop their own, you know, crops. Um, but the main part, though, that I think really appealed to people, aside from the fact that they would have this autonomy, is that this was something that they could develop, something that they knew, they knew how to do. Uh, and they also said, you know, the older black men, you know, would be, make themselves available to the federal government in any capacity that the government wanted them. If they wanted us to serve uh, in the military, they would do so, and that the older men and the women and children would develop these crops. Um, now, Sandy, maybe you want to say something about the, um, the experimental projects that were already taking place. So as early as, 19, I'm sorry, early as 1862, the federal government was already settling black people on 40-acre land grants. So in the, in the process of the war being conducted, as the Union Army moves through the South, uh, black people were essentially liberating themselves from slavery and joining the Union Army. Uh, so uh, at that time, the federal government does introduce a set of policies which were viewed as experiments at the time uh, in terms of settling black people on tracts of land that they could farm. And, and of course, the black folks who had been enslaved were expert farmers. <laughs> that they knew how to do. <laughs> so, uh, so one of the most notable of these experiments was the uh, Port Royal experiment conducted in South Carolina. And uh, I think it was uh, exceptionally successful. Yes. Uh, and, and steps were then being made to uh, to, to auction off the land to the, uh, to the folks who were, who had, had self-liberated themselves. And, um, unfortunately, they allowed northern speculators to participate in the auctions. And the northern speculators, even though the, the lands were being, uh, offered at, at well below market price, the northern speculators were in a position to offer more than the enslaved folks were able to offer. And so they began to accumulate the land. And what we now know as the uh, uh, as Hilton Head Island. Right. All these uh, resorts across those South resorts Carolina. All across South Carolina. Those same families still own that land. land. To this day, including individuals who have been elected to high state official <laughs> yes. positions yes. in the state of South Carolina. Absolutely. Well, you know, South Carolina is kind of South Carolina. Right. It's, a, yeah. it's a different kind of place. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so the the last thing up here to mention, I Black think, is the Black Manifesto, and yes, the uh, the date would have been 1969, I believe, not 1956, and that's the year in which James Foreman uh, jumps up on the uh, on the platform at the uh, I think at Riverside. the the Riverside Church. And issues this docu this statement from a document that was developed in a uh, in in a uh, meeting of black liberation organizations that had taken place in Detroit, Michigan, and that's that's the Black Manifesto, and it included a claim for churches and synagogues to pay 
black Americans, uh, what at the time was it, was it $500 million he was asking for? Yeah, nine, right. And, and you want to talk about what happened? So with he, that? he asked for $500 million, and this coalition of Christian and Jewish uh, communities of faith gave him 1%. 1% of what he requested. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Not 1% from now on, 1%. Yeah, so yeah. we talk about what actually happened to that $5 yeah. million in the book. Uh, I mean, they did some good things with the money that they received. Yeah, but, but uh, it was short-lived, yeah. and uh, a couple of the organizations that were formed got some funding from the Ford Foundation to keep them going for a while. There was but a black think tank yeah. that actually generated some... Well, it, it, there's, a, there's a, an economics journal to this day called the Review of Black Political Economy. That grew out of, out of the that black economic tank. research mm-hmm. center that was a product of the funds from the $5 million that were... They seeded two black radio stations. Yeah. Uh, but all of these were temporary outcomes, although the review of black political economies... It still exists. Exist. The black economic research center is gone. So, um, so there is the open question as to how they settled on a claim for $500 million. Yeah, and there's an additional question as to why the claim was made to churches and synagogues rather than right. the federal government. Was there a perception that that was the low-hanging fruit, uh, which, which is always an issue right. with this, this type of process? So I believe Professor Katie Kurtz said that there was correspondence that preceded that uh, allocation mm-hmm. and that followed it and that she has seen it. And I'd be very interested to know. Um, yes. Can you speak to that? Or? Uh, the, um, there's some correspondence after, after, uh-huh, okay. um, after the, um, after the call, the Riverside church then responds. There's a, a, a for, there's formal, um, and there's a very good book about this. Um, that has lots of primary source material in it. Okay. Um, and Love to get that title from you. Yeah, I, I can't think of it in off future. the top of in my future. head. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, that, and uh, there's, uh, for anybody who's interested in this, you can actually find some of this on the um, uh, Episcopal Archives website um, that has, uh, they've documented some of this correspondence. Okay. Excellent. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Okay, we'll move to the next one. I was making a quick note. I want to see that correspondence. My brain is a sieve. If I don't write it down immediately, it's gone. All right. So, what are the reasons given by black Americans who oppose reparations? So, we're going to need every black person in this room to give me some of those reasons. Well, it well, could or, be somebody you know white, white who knows what black people are saying about well, reparations. Maybe. But, 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 but your turn will come. <laughs> black people first? All right, all right. Uh, they don't want to be seen as victims. And, and tell us your name, please, again. My name is Halim Lobby, H-A-L-I-M. Um, okay. Why would black people say that reparations is a bad thing? Yeah. Then, like, uh, what's his name? What football player was it? That I can't judge my white brother for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah. 
Virgil Owens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was not OJ. <laughs> <laughs> um, I yeah. Um, I guess one uh, argument I've heard from some wealthier black folks is that, uh, you know, we did it. We worked hard for our money. And so why can't the rest of you all do it? Like the rest of the people living in poverty, why can't they work just as hard as I did to get where I am? Yeah, I think sort of, oh, hi, sorry, um, sort of along those lines, um, I feel like there is a fear, especially with um, wealthier black people, that um, that will be seen as a monolith of like black and poor will become synonymous in the minds of white people. Um, yes. Or, or the idea that the, the reparations conversation even brings up that idea in the first place, right. Um, of black folks being a monolith and um, in terms of class. Um, and also I, I feel like that's uh, comes from sort of a root of um, like, right. Wanting to be wanting class to erase racial boundaries if that makes sense, like uh, not wanting to be uh, maybe associated in the same way uh, with black folks who would need reparations, right? Plum, like the fruit. Plum, P-L-U-M. Yeah. I'm, I'm going again. Um. It's, it's Halim again. Yes. I appreciate you always remembering everyone's names, by the way. Well, we write them down. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, one argument is that other minority groups, whether they be Asian, Jewish, or immigrant, have come here and gone through similar form. Well, they've gone through discrimination and they've invested in education and they're making it out. You can become doctors, lawyers, and engineers too in Boston. <laughs> So I think one's got to be, you know, the near certainty of resentment and backlash. You know, if the money, uh, if, uh, you know, taxpayers, particularly white taxpayers, they see money uh, going to black people for reparations, is that going to be a point of resentment?
And then Plum has another one. Sorry, I had one more. Um, in terms of, uh, like, I guess it comes back to the one drop rule, right? I've heard that argument more recently of, like, who are we referring to as black? Um, right, like, I'm a mixed person. My dad is white. Like, do I get reparations, right? Like, I feel like that is really complex, um, especially considering uh, the history of, like, the one drop rule and how that informs racial categorization. So uh, I don't know if that's particularly, like, a big oppose. I think that's a good question generally, but... Yeah, it definitely does. We're, we're, you, you weren't at our talk last night, were you? Unfortunately, I was not. Okay. <laughs> any, any, anyone else want to mention something you've heard? Black people say? Uh, so we had a, um, a panel uh, a couple of weeks ago at the School of Theology where we had someone from Virginia Theological Seminary and they're right now making payments to people who are, who are descendants. And the woman who's in charge of that said, some people take them. Uh, yes, Debbie Davis. She said, some people take them, some people don't. And one thing that she's heard was, it's blood money. She just said, it's blood money. <laughs> Well, but some people didn't take it, right? Because it was a blood money. So, yeah. Re reparations has never been mandatory. One of the things I've heard from students is maybe not an argument against it, but just a kind of shrug. Uh, it's impossible. It's, it's impossible. impossible. It won't ever happen. It'll never happen. So I have a question I want to raise out loud for uh, for for us, Carson. Okay. Which is, uh, should we ask folks in the in the community to it's answer the these questions as opposed that. to us answering all of these? <laughs> Excellent intervention. All right. So, so we did an order, or just in any any? Let's do them in the order. In the order that they okay. yeah. So what would you say to the answer? Black people will be seen as victims. If black people get reparations, will you think of black people as, as victims? What, 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 what will they be? Will their, will their status change? And, and if so, in what ways? Well, Professor Mullen, you gave us this, this issue. Do you have some thoughts? <laughs> Personally, I don't think they'd be seen as victims at all. Um, or, or I think, you know, saying that we'll be seen as, as victims is, to me personally, not a reason to um, not advocate uh, for reparations. Um, when you think about sort of the long arc of this process from enslavement to Jim Crow and even after, there were a lot of atrocities um, that black people, lots of oppression that black people had to live through. Um, a lot of things that were stolen from black people in terms of land and, and other things um, and some of the massacres and, and things you all mentioned last night. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's a reason to be seen there, seen as a, a victim there at all.
Well, I mean, but what you described were acts of victimization. Right. And I'm saying that if I were on the flip side of that, um, give me my money. I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a victim here. Well, uh, yeah, any other thoughts on this? Because, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, I would connect it also with number three, right? The whole thing of, well, let's just work for it. Let's get it for ourselves. You know, um, the whole thing of, you know, it's either that or, kind of this either or, this false dichotomy of either we can go and work for it or we can be victims. Now, I think what I would say uh, to that is that, well, like you said, what, uh, what Professor Moman just outlined were acts of victimization, whether we acknowledge them as such or not. Now, if we acknowledge them as such, and we also then pay out reparations for those acts of victimization, does that necessarily mean that people will stop working for what they, uh, for what they want to have in life? And I mean, it's been, uh, it's been thrown at black folks going back to uh, the Freedmen's Borough and so on. You, hand, you give them handouts, they're not going to work anymore. You know, that's, that's always been the, uh, the kind of critique, and I'm not convinced it's true. You know, the people, if they uh, you acknowledge the victimization, then the uh, labor incentive is not there anymore. I'm not sure that's true. Well, now, I'm not sure that those are the same issues. Uh, so one issue is the characterization of a people as being victims, which means it's supposed to have some sort of adverse psychological effect on them. I'm not sure if that necessarily means it's a motivational effect or it's some other type of traumatizing effect. Uh, but I, I think we should separate this question of whether or not the money brands you as a victim versus whether the money creates work disincentives. Okay. Oh, no, and I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Okay. And, and, you know, it's interesting that there's never been an inclination to describe the 160-acre land grants that whites to, received, mm -hmm. that whites right. received or the at the same time that black people were denied the 40-acre land grants or the provisions of the GI Bill right. for uh, home ownership as handouts. It, it's only if it's something that appears to be given to black folks that it gets the label of being a handout. Mm -hmm. uh, but well, also, are you a victim too? If so, yeah, but we, we, we are victims, right? I mean, it's, right. We are a victim. We have population. been victimized. That's right. why. That's why the reparations claim is being made. Now, if there are individuals who don't want to be labeled as victims because they think that receipt of reparations will do that for them, they can be like the folks who re rejected the blood money. They don't have to take it. Send the money back into the pool and it will go to somebody else who is not as troubled by the idea of being characterized as a victim. Uh, when we think about uh, folks who are subjected to trauma, you know, women who've been subjected to rape, the confrontation with the culpable party and some act of restitution is the primary and best way to deal with the victimization. So if, if, if we really are concerned about people having this victim status, when in fact they have been victimized, then reparations is the means of correcting the circumstances. So, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, the other thing on, on working hard, 
when black people have worked hard in the United States, <laughs> what they have produced has been taken away from them. Uh, when when uh, black people do the right thing, it frequently results in uh, in in, in a, a greater deficit than it does for white people. And one of the statistics we threw out last night was the fact that blacks with a college degree, uh, black heads of household with a college degree, have two-thirds of the net worth of white heads of household who never finished high school. So, so, so hold on. So, so people ask, well, how is that possible? And? <laughs> so what they have is wealth. Yeah. Right? Um, I remember um, and they get wealth they get wealth through intergenerational right? advantages. Yeah. Um, but talking to a friend uh, in Jacksonville, this would be a white friend who was just kvetching about, um, you know, she, she was doing some of that, um, you know, keeping your eye on your neighbor's house, right? So she was comparing herself unfavorably to people who she thought were her inferiors. These are her white colleagues, and how she had worked so hard and and just struggled and and had so little to show for it. All the while giving me a tour of this three-story brick house on two acres that she had been given by her grandmother. And I was like, Joanne, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. You know, um, you know, yes, you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not disavowing your case, but you're not destitute. You know, she, she owned that house free and clear. And I was saying, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about. This is what black people for the most part do not have. They just do not have it. Um, during our first trip to Charleston, uh, South Carolina, we were, you know, doing all the touristy things. But for us, touristy things means going to the slave market and going to the Confederate Museum of the South. And um, so we were on Market Street, and I noticed a plaque for this gorgeous three-story brownstone um, on a corner on Market Street. And it was owned, uh, in, it was in the family of the, uh, the Isaac Mazikes, M-A-Z-Y-C-K, which caught our eye because we know some M-A-Z-I-Q-U-E's, one of Sandy's college roommates, and the Minot, M-I-N-N-O-T families. And the plaque indicated that that structure had been in their family for 10 generations. And the plaque itself was dated 1968. So let's add two more to that, 12. The plaque, so then I went online to, to do a lot more research about this and got a couple of books also to support, uh, to learn more. So that one house was one of two houses that they had in the city of Charleston. And those two houses were supported by three plantations that they owned. And altogether, they had enslaved some 783 black people. Right? Um, I don't know of any black family, maybe some of you do, who has anything like that from three generations, let alone 12. Um, but when you're talking about the Homestead Act, this is the 1862 Homestead Act, which um, I can remember my older sister uh, you know, trying to, you know, learn uh, her lessons for history classes. And in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, you know, our history classes were taught, you know, I refer to them as the bad old days. You know, it was just sort of dates, places, and figures. I once had an exam where we had to list the 40 Civil War battles uh, to identify, you know, who won and to name the officers down to the third rank. That was the exam, not the consequences, not what did it mean to me, nothing. Uh, and then Sandy, who grew up in North Carolina, had an assignment with maybe fifth or sixth grade where he had to memorize the county seats for all 109 North Carolina counties. Yeah. It's like you have, to, you have to kind of wonder, like, what's behind that kind of instruction? 
you know, were they intentionally making sure that none of us really understood what had happened in our, in our, in our country's history? So, um, you know, it's important for us to kind of unpackage all of these things. Um, but the significance for the Homestead Acts is that these are families who, um, you know, basically were taking land out west, right? Uh, and this is land that had just only recently been occupied by native peoples. So these white families were completing the colonial settler project for the United States. Right? Um, although Bill Cody's parents had a homestead in Iowa that they paid, I think, $14 for. Um, so the land was tax-free. If you didn't like your 160 acres, you could trade it at least twice for a better plot of land, which a lot of people did do. Um, one of our colleagues has done some research, and she uh, documents, documents a, a family that was from Germany, and this is the work of um, Jennifer, Jennifer yeah. Mueller. Um, and so the patriarch, his wife, and their four children uh, come to the United States, so just recent immigrants, and initially, maybe he wasn't aware of the Homestead Act, so he buys land on the, on the open market, but he's not able to make a success of it. You know, he tries, you know, for almost a year, he has to send his wife and children back to Germany. Then he learns about the Homestead Act. He gets a 160-acre land, land, uh, land parcel. He does so well that he's able to bring them back. So here's this white man who couldn't even, you know, couldn't even prosper in the open market, but with this government equity, this free equity from the government, he's able to turn his life around, bring his family to the United States and make a go of it. Um, so she also, um, same scholar, has her students kind of look at their own family's wealth positions and find out if there was a Homestead Act in their histories. And the students were incredibly skeptical about this. Um, this is at Texas A&M University. Turns out that fully a quarter of all of those white students, so the class of 150 students, um, 100 of them self-identified as white, 13 as black, and what is the, what's the balance of that? 40, no, 37. Thank you, my math is horrible. That's why I married an economist. Um, 37 of them of color. 25% of all the white students had a homestead act in their past. 25%. None, zero, of the black or of color students had one. Then, um, so we have been, um, twice, our book has been taught by a local high school uh, in Carborough, North Carolina, two towns over. And uh, Matt Cohn, uh, so it's an AP global studies and history class. And so he, you know, we suggested to him that he, you know, uh, have his students do a similar kind of inquiry. I would just add that the town of Carver is, is named for Julian Carr, who is a virulent racist. Slaveholder. <laughs> slaveholder. Duke has taken his name off of a building on campus. Uh, will the town of, and, that, and now the town of Carborough is trying to decide that they will take his name off their, their town. But um, so, um, so, one of the, so one of the students holds up in the Zoom uh, a land patent from, night, from 1842, so 20 years before the Homestead Act. It was signed by Andrew Jackson. So like, wow, you know, this is incredible. Uh, so, um, but, uh, but back to uh, Jennifer Mueller's uh, class at Texas A&M. So, um, so she talks about a family that received a land grant in the Texas Panhandle area. So that northern part of Texas. And um, they decide they're not going to live on the land. They're going to lease it. So they're receiving a revenue stream, you know, from this, this, this government uh, handout, basically. Um, then the patriarch dies, and uh, his widow decides to move with the eight children to Austin, Texas, to give the children a better opportunity to go to college. And six of the eight graduate 
from university without debt because she's able to finance their education. She dies, and then the eight children decide to continue to lease the land and split the proceeds eight ways. Then in 1980, a full 100 years after the patent was granted, natural gas is discovered on the land. And the deposits are so amazing, you know, so, so, so um, voluminous, that that first year alone, they uh, receive $100,000 in revenue. So, you know, we like to say it's like the federal government is giving you a, a monthly dividend check. And this is what white Americans, including recent immigrants from Europe, received from the federal government that black people did not. You know, this is land that, you know, like this family, you could lease, you could subdivide it, um, you could uh, borrow against this, 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 this land. Uh, if there's any natural resources, if there's lumber, if there's livestock, it's yours to, to use, yours to sell. But most importantly, you can bequeath the profits and the land itself to your offspring. And this is what they did. Uh, you know, wealth is accumulated. We talk so much about the self-made. Um, you know, sociologist Dalton Connolly says, you know, Americans seem to be, you know, the people who are so invested in this. I did it myself. You know, we have Benjamin Franklin and Jefferson uh, and Franklin and Frederick Douglass to thank for this, both of them. Um, I mean, it's, 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 I don't know if any of you all have read um, uh, either of their autobiographies, but they, in, in both cases, they're describing themselves as self-made. And they, you know, they, these are people who are you know, industrious, they persevere, um, they're self-directed. And then they proceed to name all of the people who have helped them. <laughs> you know, um, Benjamin Franklin, you know, famously leaves his brother's house. You know, he's, he's apprenticed to his brother. His, he and his brother don't get along. But he's given a letter of introduction to a family in the next town who take him in and teach him the printing trade. So self-made, not so much. Um, but there's something about that, and there's something about that being the American story and also about immigrants coming to this country and immediately taking on that story, which gets us to, is that one of these? Number five. Number five. <laughs> do you want to talk about open? Well, or do you uh, want to, or skip yeah, over. So, so I think this is probably the last question we're going to be For time? able okay. to get to. So I, I want to go make sure I get to the one drop rule question and then work through. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, so, uh, Last night, we talked about our criteria for eligibility for reparations, and so I want to speak directly to Plum's question. Uh, for us, the one-drop rule is not the standard. The standard is twofold. First, what we refer to as a lineage standard, which is an individual would need to in indicate or demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. Now, of course, that criteria in and of itself, that criterion could apply to many people who are living as white in the United States. Okay, So that's why we have a second criterion, which we refer to as an identity standard. So for at least 12 years before the onset of... Uh, or before the enactment of a reparations plan or the enactment of a study commission for reparations, an individual would have to demonstrate that they self-identified on an official document as black, Negro, African-American, or Afro-American. And so it's it's got nothing to do with DNA. It's got nothing to do with skin shade. It's got nothing to do with whether or not you might have a white parent in the current generation. 
It's whether or not you have at least one black ancestor and whether or not you self-identified as black at a point where there was no monetary advantage to doing so. Okay, so that's it. Uh, with respect to uh, working hard for your dollars and why can't other black people do likewise, I think more affluent blacks are not wealthy. They have high incomes, but they are not wealthy, and they fully don't tend to appreciate the distinction between income and wealth. So, for example, uh, if we were to look at blacks who are in the professional managerial class, they have lower levels of income than whites who are in the working class, but they have hugely lower levels of wealth than whites who are in the working class. The lowest income whites, whites in the bottom 20% of the income distribution, have a higher median level of wealth than all black Americans taken together. Okay. So there really isn't very much of a group that we could call wealthy blacks. One quarter of all white households have a net worth in excess of $1 million. That's true for only 4% of black households. Uh, so there's kind of a mystification, and it's, it's indicative of uh, E. Franklin Frazier's classic uh, diatribe, black bourgeoisie, in which he argues that uh, black people who are comparatively more affluent than other black people really exaggerate the distance in their position from the rest of the black population. So, so uh, let, let's, let's, let's put that to rest. Uh, then uh, with respect to the immigrant question, uh, it, there's an entire chapter of our book where we, we try to tackle this, this, this idea. But the, the most important thing that I think we have to keep in mind is that uh, this, this trope that this is a nation of immigrants does not apply to two communities. One community, obviously, is indigenous Americans. And, and that's a community that always gets annoyed by hearing this is a nation of immigrants. The other community is those of us whose ancestors came as, as persons who arrived in, in chains as opposed to being voluntary immigrants to the United States. And that distinction is really critical. Other immigrant communities were not subjected to enslavement. And other immigrant communities were not subjected to the denial of the 40-acre land grants upon the end of enslavement. Other communities were not subjected to 100 massacres that resulted in the, uh, the, the taking of, a, of, of many black lives, but also the appropriation and seizure of black-owned properties. Other communities were not deprived of access to the home ownership benefits and the business ownership benefits associated with the GI Bill. So there is something very specific about the victimization process that has been applied to black American descendants of U.S. slavery. And so talking about the successes of other immigrant communities, again, is an act of mystification about 
what actually has taken place in the United States. I urge you to look at the second chapter of our book where we talk about this phenomenon of hyper-selectivity of immigrant communities to the United States. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, is it impossible? Will there be such a substantial backlash that this is something that can't happen or shouldn't happen? Well, we have had reparations enacted for other communities and for other circumstances. And so uh, unless we imagine it as something that is possible, it definitely will never happen. Uh, but I think last night, Kirsten talked about changes in the uh, amount of support or receptiveness to the idea of monetary payments for reparations on the part of white Americans in the United States, which has changed from 4% of the white population in the year 2000 to about 30% today. Don't know if that change is something that's sustainable, but it is grounds for optimism. And we know it's not impossible in terms of the actual practical dimensions of execution of the program, especially given the huge sums of money that the federal government recently has spent for the purposes of trying to address the Great Recession and, and the COVID-19 crisis. So uh, I'll, I'll turn it back to Kirsten because there's at least one more thing we want to try to tackle. I'm not sure how much time we have. I really would love to get the um, members of the white uh, folks who are here, your opposition that you've heard. But before, uh, and whether we can do it or not, I do want to talk a bit about this thing called dismemory. Um, so, you know, Sandy talked about this sort of mis uh, the mythification, this misrepresentation of our history, uh, this misinformation. So, like, why does all that exist? I mean, some of it's willful on our part. So let's just be real clear about that. Some of it's willful. We don't want to know. Um, or once we hear things, we, 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 we throw up our defenses and say, I, I don't want to hear any more about that. Um, this is too uncomfortable. It's too awkward. You know, fill in the blank. I just can't face this conversation. But the other important thing to know, and I wasn't aware of this, is that groups like the Daughters of the American Revolution and the United Daughters of the Confederacy were in the textbook writing business. So these very you know, well-heeled, educated, elite white women um, you know, looked for history textbook writers who hewed to the narratives that they wanted to see, which were the lost cause narratives, um, you know, texts that um, glorified uh, the South, slavery, um, you know, these traitors, these secessionists were honorable men, gallant and true. They were only patriots. Uh, when we went to the White House of the Confederacy uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, which is across the street from the State House, um, now it wasn't always there, but that piece, I think they moved it there in the, maybe the 1920s, but the land was available for their use. Um, you know, slavery does not appear and on any of the captions in that museum. And Jefferson Davis has talked about as this great patriot, this great American, someone who we should all revere. Um, and the place is pristine. It's very beautifully preserved. Uh, and you know, the exhi uh, exhibitions are quite extraordinary. And part of the reason for that is that the state of Alabama appropriates $100,000 a year to the preservation of the first White House of the Confederacy. Now, Less than a quarter of a mile away is the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and the Parsonage, which was Reverend uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s first church. And the Parsonage is where his wife, 
daughter Yolanda and a friend of his wife's were when a bomb was thrown into that house. Fortunately, the house was in two parts. They were on the left side. The bomb was thrown on the right. The state doesn't support that house, right, or that museum. So, you know, if you live in Alabama and you pay taxes, you support the White House or the Confederacy. So we have to kind of think about, you know, what we're really about in this country. Um, so the UDC, um, first, when they couldn't find, you know, textbook authors who would, who were already, you know, kind of hewing this text. So be- before they got in the textbook business, they had very accurate textbooks. You know, the first 40 years after the Civil, after the Civil War ended, you, you know, the textbooks would be what we would like to see, period. Um, you know, they were taken both from um, newspaper accounts, but also journals, um, you know, just as these things, it's just history as created today. Um, when they couldn't find uh, or get blackballed um, textbook writers who had a different, you know, more accurate message, they decided that they would write textbooks themselves, which they did do. And one of the textbooks, I went to three different high schools in Texas. Uh, when my mother was in graduate school, we, we moved to wherever she was doing a, a residency or an internship. And in Mount Pleasant, Texas, which is on the um, Arkansas border, um, we, uh, Mount Pleasant High, uh, had a DAR chapter in our high school. And we had one of those textbooks. Um, but Sandy was uh, talking about uh, earlier today an article that's in, is it the Washington Post? Yeah. About um, three days ago, uh, a white writer who was in school uh, with one of these textbooks in, I think, 1969. So, you know, to, to the students, that sounds like the Pleistocene era. But it helps explain why people our age feel the way they do, because we have been indoctrinated, not just white people, but black people as well. Um, and no one was questioning this stuff. You know, if anyone had suggested to me or even presented to me the Homestead Act, which I knew about, um, you know, I was sort of jokingly, you know, talking about how, you know, we helped my sister um, and then I benefited later, you know, to memorize these facts and factoids of history with, um, you know, acronyms and mnemonics and songs. I mean, you all know my very educated mother just served us nine pickles to learn, you know, to memorize the names of the planets. But we had, you know, 1862, the Homestead Act, Marill Act, Department of Agriculture. I couldn't tell you what the significance of any of that, but I could certainly spit it out on the exam. But if anyone had presented to me side by side the Homestead Act, the Marill Act, and 40 acres that black people didn't give, I would have sat up and paid attention, right? So you know, we, it's important for us to invest some time and money in recreating accurate history books. You know, people talk about you know, African-American history and the rest of it. It's the same. It's all the same, and it all needs to be incorporated on every single page. You know, one of the many discoveries that we made while writing from Tier to Equality, when we went back and looked at some of these uh, primary documents, especially newspaper accounts, you would see the article that was quoted in the textbook that we had been um, exposed to, and right next to it would be an article about black people. On the next page, another article about black people. It's like, oh, so it was there. They just chose not to include it. Um, you know, I was startled to see white um, Union soldiers in Texas who were uh, officers of the Freedmen's Bureau saying, things are really getting heated here. They are killing the black people with impunity, and they are coming after us as well. I didn't know anything about that when I was coming up. 
Um, but we have to fight these inaccurate, systematic, deliberate lies that are being fed to our children. And we have to learn to question the received wisdom that we have also been given. Um, the material is there. Um, we just need to, you know, double down and do more research. Yes. Do we have more time or are we out of time? Are we out of time? Do we? Okay. Yeah. All right, well, okay. one more question. So, and is that the one we want to ask? Yeah. Are the reasons different for those? Yes. Oh, right. Yes, okay. So, <laughs> please, what are some of the, um, the, the, the reasons for opposing reparations that, uh, that you have heard other white people give? Hi, I'm Liz. I was actually having a conversation with my friend earlier today, and we were talking about this because I knew I was coming to this, and she was like, well, that was just so long ago. Why does it really matter? And I think it's kind of like the lack. And the back is, mm-hmm. the back, that was so long ago. Mm-hmm. What was the back? Slavery. Slavery, thank you. Kind of being like, and trying to explain that it really wasn't that long ago, that it's not, it's something that, people tend to associate as being in the past when it's something that still obviously has effects today. I already have the mic, so I guess I'll give one as well. Um, (laughs) Christian, again. um, I hear frequently this kind of misunderstanding of the differences between race and class and the idea that because marginalized white people exist, that somehow reparations aren't due um, to black people. I I especially hear this in the context of um, a lot of like very poor rural whites, uh, white people in Appalachia that because they are also parts of marginalized groups that are are still um, held down through poverty that for some reason we should, we should not be um, allocating money to black people when in reality, obviously stigmatization due to race and class are, are two very different things. So are these people who also argue that there should be some massive income redistribution that would benefit all people? No, I think usually it's in bad faith. And I think a lot of times the people that are arguing that are um, not even, I'm from Southwest Virginia. So a lot of times I think it's people that aren't even from areas that are, are, are marginalized in that way by things like extractive industry. And they just choose to do it um, not because they care about the marginalized white people, but because they don't care about the marginalized black people. others? Um, I can also go. Something I've also heard um, is why should I be punished um, for something I didn't do or something I didn't have any say in? I feel like that's a really big thing that um, is said a lot of times is people don't want to admit um, what their ancestors did and like take. So that's kind of the Burgess Owens question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, also. Yeah. Okay, and I guess I so many things that it's very hard to sort of pin them down to just one. Um, I was speaking to my father last night, and he echoed something quite similar to what Alexis just said, but also, you know, essentially 
people who were enslaved are dead, right? And so how can we pay them was sort of the other point he made, which I think is pairs with it was so long ago. Um, but I think there's a lot of arguments that are made. Um, and I had one that I really wanted to mention. And of course, as soon as I got the microphone, it fled my mind completely because that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, Oh, oh, um, the, oh, there's the, the classic, um, white people were enslaved too. Ah. Like, that, that's, that's a classic, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've heard that it's just too expensive. Okay. And, and your name? Uh, Alex. Alex, thank you. Um, I've heard that it is too hard to trace back the family lineage, um, and it'd be too painstaking of a task. It'd be too time-consuming. One of the um, one of the conversations that have, has happened recently in my class is around um, uh, whether reparations should happen as cash payments or as institutional investment. And it seems to me that many people are more able to get on uh, to get on board if you say it is institutional investment and not cash payment. And are they specific about which institutions should receive No, although I, this is also in the context of the Black Manifesto conversation, and so part of that has arisen in a, um, oh, they're not asking for cash payments. They're asking for investment in these very specific nine different uh, institutional investments. And so maybe I'm more willing to get on board and not with uh, individual cash payments. You want to start with the first one? Sure. Flavor so long ago. Okay. So talk about a little bit. Um, so there are two ways that we kind of think about this. First, from a generational perspective, it's not that long ago. Um, and second, you know, immediately after slavery, um, you know, every state in the country, um, uh, every state, let me back, change it. Let me backpack. Every every state across the South uh, passed black codes which in almost every instance were even more um, restrictive, more punitive than the code noir that existed previously. Um, it's on top of punishing enslaved by people for attempting to, um, to leave their employers, to negotiate contracts, uh, in some cases to obtain literacy. Um, they were also uh, including 
laws that would punish white people for attempted to to assist them. So, you know, uh, in Alabama, for example, a white person who was involved in, as they called it, enticing a black person to, you know, to leave their, usually the person who had enslaved them formally and go to some place that was either less dangerous or, you know, paid better wages or better conditions, they also could receive 30 lashes on the bare back, right? So, um, but the other thing is for us, we're not focused on slavery reparations per se. You know, this is the crucible from which all of this white supremacy flows, but we're also talking about this nearly 100 years of American apartheid, and this period when from the end of the Civil War through uh, World War II, you had, you know, upwards of 100 massacres of black people. You know, we often say, you know, part of the reason that people have heard of these black towns that were successful like Tulsa is because white people destroyed them. You know, that's why people know about Black Wall Street, because it was burned to the ground. Um, and this is also the case in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, but then there's the third epoch, which is the one that continues, the one that we're in presently, where we're still seeing, um, you know, anti-black police violence, this incredible carceral system that, you know, by far over, uh, you know, over-engages black people, but also discrimination in credit markets and housing markets and health and education and um, employment. I mean, if anything, you know, the, the COVID crisis has exposed all of that in ways that many people were not aware before. Um, I would say COVID and cell phones. Um, and when you look at, you know, the cases where reparations have been paid, almost all of them, especially in, in recent times, were televised. There's a lot to be said for, you know, having lots of eyes and ears on horrors that occur, which is one of the reasons why I would say, you know, it's incumbent on us to speak up when you see things. You know, don't assume that somebody else is going to report the harm, the, outright, the outrage, the, the atrocity that you witnessed. That's not always the case. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's a muscle that gets strengthened with use. Um, but that is one way, I think, to, you know, to begin to step into this work. With respect to the second uh, issue, that uh, race is not equivalent to class and that there are marginalized whites, absolutely true. Uh, and I would argue that to address these types of class differences, we need something that uh, several of us have referred to as an economic bill of rights for the 21st century which would be inclusive of uh, a guarantee of employment. It would be inclusive of a guarantee of adequate health care. It would be inclusive of a guarantee of adequate housing. But this is distinct and separate from uh, the requirement for a reparations program to address a debt that has not been paid for 156 years. And as we pointed out earlier, whites who are poor actually do benefit from racial privilege in the United States. That's reflected in uh, a circumstance in which whites who are in the lowest tier of the income distribution actually have a higher level of wealth than all black Americans combined. And moreover, uh, if you were to compare blacks and whites in that lowest tier of the income distribution, White median wealth is in the vicinity of seventeen to eighteen thousand dollars, and black median wealth approaches zero. So, uh, so these 
these class differences carry racial loadings with them in the United States. And so, yes, there are marginalized whites, but the process of marginalization is not the same from the process of marginalization for white. Yes, uh, go, go ahead. Okay, well, well, the other dimension of this is that uh, poor whites have a certain degree of insulation or protection from, uh, from the police. They're much less likely to be shot. And they also uh, have a different degree of protection in the legal system when uh, court cases are brought forward. So, okay. Uh, yeah, so the third question is, some, some people ask, why should they be punished for something that their ancestors did? So the first thing is, I'm not sure why they think they're being punished. Uh, we're not proposing that dollars be taken out of the pockets of individual white people and transferred into the pockets of individual black people. We're saying that the federal government should bear responsibility for financing the reparations package, so punishment is not involved. We don't think of this as a matter of individual guilt. We think of this as a matter of national responsibility because of the federal government's culpability, but why is something that the ancestors did pertinent in the present moment? It's because of the long-term consequences. And had the United States actually paid reparations through the provision of land grants at the end of the Civil War, we may not be having this conversation today. What took place instead was a process of creating and adopting a set of social policies that widened the wealth gap to the point at which there is an $840,000 differential in net worth between the average black and white household today. Okay, so uh, yes, uh, all of the persons who were enslaved are dead today, and so it is impossible to remunerate them directly, but there are consequences for their descendants or their posterity that we still have to take into account and that's who should be remunerated. And as I pointed out last night, uh, the, uh, the remunerative, the remunerative payments, well, I have a hard time with that word. Uh, the remunerative payments should not go, uh, cannot go to the people who are no longer with us. And the amount should not be predicated on what is owed to them. Uh, and that's why we focus on the existing racial wealth gap. Uh, with respect to white slavery, I'd actually like to share uh, a passage from our book where uh, we talk about this because this seems to come up quite a lot. Um, we said, we say on page 67, black people overwhelmingly were the objects of enslavement. While there was an extended period of white immigrant indentured servitude during the colonial period, their numbers were dwarfed by coerced immigrants from the African continent. Even at the height of importation of white indentures, while 216,000 whites came to British North America as bonded laborers, 300,000 Africans were forcibly imported to the colonies. By the time of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, the practice of white indentureship was in sharp decline. On the other hand, by 1790, there were close to 700,000 enslaved blacks in the United States, a number that grew to 4 million by the start of the Civil War. 
black enslavement had a unique severity that obviates any equivalence that might be drawn to white indentured servitude. As historian Dominique Sandbrook observes, it was almost always much better to be a European servant than an African slave. Not only were servants transported in better conditions, they could also hope to be free men if they survived their term of service. Above all, they were white, which meant that they were automatically different from the West African slaves. As the servants would have pointed out, the racial codes of the American colonies were a lot more than mere window dressing. Calling them slaves might be a marketing ploy, but it stretches the meaning of slavery beyond breaking point. One of the eventual beneficiaries of the relatively advantaged position of white indentures appears to be actor and country music star Reba McIntyre. Unlike enslaved blacks who could not obtain property rights and land under any circumstances after the 1660s in Virginia, indentures were given grants or land or could purchase land on credit. No relatives are known to have accompanied nine-year-old George Brassfield, six generations removed from McIntyre, on his passage from England to colonial Virginia. Brassfield was contracted out to work for a tobacco farmer in Essex County, Virginia, and completed his indenture by 1710. Via the headright system, he was able to purchase 300 acres of land with 1,600 pounds of tobacco in 1721. By 1819, less than a century later, his grandson and namesake, George Brassfield, born in 1765, owned 1,615 acres of land and 10 slaves in North Carolina, and also was the owner of record of the Brassfield Tavern. The headright system always had been implemented with severe limitations on the participation of enslaved blacks that did not extend to indentured whites, and it laid the foundation for the wealth of George Brassfield and his descendants. Uh, too expensive. Yes. Yeah. 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 You want to talk about it? Oh. So we would say, you know, we've done it before. We've done it before. It would have been a lot less expensive if it had been done at the end of the Civil War. Uh, it would have been less expensive if it had been done during Reconstruction, but it hasn't been. And, you know, there's, you know, this idea that because something because you have a debt and it's really, you know, a large debt, that that's the reason why you don't have to pay it. You know, it just seems like, you know, because it's black people, it's like, well, you know, it's just too much money. We just can't do that. Um, but certainly we have, in very recent memory, the federal government has made huge expenditures. I mean, think about the money that was spent bailing out the banks during the Great Recession, um, but, but also you know, on, the, on, the, uh, on the onset of covid you know, he had the American Rescue Plan, you know, more recent infrastructure uh, programs set forth, and there will be more of them. Um, one other thing, too, we have said that it is possible to stretch these reparation payments out over, say, a decade. You know, hopefully no more than a decade, but, you know, we're talking about on the low end, $14 trillion. Um, you know, $1.4 trillion over a 10-year period would not break the bank. Um, but, you know, it is possible it has been possible in these last in the three um, the three major expenditures I just described. Taxes didn't go up. You know, no individual American was required to pay for those bailout programs. Um, you know, the one concern is one potential concern is inflation, um, and 
you know, one possibility would be to give black American descendants of U.S. slavery a portfolio of reparations. So you, there might be, uh, for both symbolic and substantive reasons, an actual cash payment. But there could also be some illiquid assets. Um, they might be, um, you know, a trust fund or an annuity or stocks and bonds, p- perhaps. Um, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, creating a situation where people would not necessarily um, immediately uh, cash in those assets. But, but, but we maintain that it's important for the eligible recipients to be able to determine themselves how those funds are spent, as opposed to, you know, giving the funds to some reparations fund authority to manage the funds or putting the funds in some scholarship bucket or putting the funds in some, you know, business development bucket. Um, we think it's really important that the eligible recipients have the opportunity uh, because it is their right to determine how those funds should be spent. So the last two are related to uh, uh, the, the point that you just made, especially the last one. Uh, so cash payments to individuals versus uh, institutional investments. It's interesting that in other instances in which reparations have been paid to victimized communities, they have been direct payments. Uh, they have not been institutional investments of whether we think about the payments that were made to Japanese Americans who were subjected to mass incarceration or the German government's payments to uh, victims of the Holocaust. Now, indeed, the German government also made payments which we might describe as institutional to the, the state of Israel, right. but they also made payments to the individual victims of the Holocaust as and well. And their estates. Yeah, and their descendants. That's yeah. right. So, so the question we have is why is there this concern about making cash payments to black Americans uniquely uh, since that's not the way it's normally been done? But the, the problem with institutional investments, particularly if we think about neighborhood level investments, we're doing so in a climate in which there's a high degree of instability in the composition of neighborhoods, particularly in an era of gentrification. And so there's no way to assure that the individuals who merit the reparations will necessarily get it if you, if you deliver them to some sort of institutional apparatus. So we think individuals should have direct uh, direct, have have complete discretion over the use of the funds, and the only way you can do that is by uh, is by providing them with monetary payments, whether it's cash or an annuity or a trust account uh, directly. So one thing too for minors, you know, we have said that it you know you, it might make sense to have those funds available to them when they reach an age of maturity, yeah. but the adults would be given the payments directly. And then the, the, the last point about determining eligibility being viewed as something that's impossible. Well, I assume that the individuals who, who take that, uh, raise that question have, have never considered the eligibility criteria that we've offered. Okay. There we go. Any other questions at this moment or comments or thoughts to share? Thank you all very, 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 very much. Thank you, everyone who came. Um, Dr. Darity and Ms. Mullen are going to be signing books. 
Um, if you'd like to buy a copy, you can buy one over there. It, they take credit card, um, no cash, but they do take them though. So I used that last night. 